Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Unfucking Insane Level members Sam C, Cringy, Cindy S, and Corey S. History is the sum of squandered opportunities. The wrong leaders in a time of crisis. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Backward policies in a time of forward progress. I believe that these task forces will allow us to mount an intensive and coordinated campaign against international and domestic drug trafficking and other organized criminal enterprises. Lessons forgotten or never learned. And at the very center of that plan is a giant, beautiful, massive, the biggest ever in our country, tax cut. Bad policies, lousy leaders, stupid mistakes, self-inflicted political wounds happen all the time and can set nations on a disastrous course. But nothing alters political calculus more than war. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has shaken the world order and assumptions in a significant way. So I want to take this moment to pause and reflect on some major themes that we've covered because certain ideas are now more in reach than previously thought, and others seem much further away. As usual, there are competing narratives at play, and many are predictably false and misleading. So we'll be doubling down on certain concepts in an attempt to continue elevating our conversation and offering insight on the periphery of the noise machine operating at full tilt right now. In terms of the war in Ukraine, I'm once again offering the caveat that I have nothing useful to add with respect to how the war is being litigated, the future of the Ukrainian people, or whether or not past Western actions may or may not have played a role in Putin's decision to invade Ukraine at this moment. As I said in the last episode, to explain is not to excuse. Vladimir Putin should be deposed by his own people and tried in The Hague for war crimes in defiance of international law. Now, in practical terms, I'm not a war correspondent, so I'm choosing my sources very carefully and deliberately to understand the events as they unfold. So for our part on UNFTR, I feel my role is to contextualize the economic fallout of this event and what it pretends for the global citizenry. While it sounds frankly callous, certain opportunities have opened up in light of Putin's actions, and a savvy political and activist class will recognize this and hopefully seize the momentum before the class of bad neoliberal actors has a chance to mobilize its messaging. So while we're digging back into enormous themes, we're breaking them into bite-sized chunks to center our attention on three important concepts. Economic inequality, mass mobilization, and climate change. Preposterous for a quickie, I know, but we have to timestamp what is happening right now and examine the ways in which Putin has unwittingly opened multiple doors to the left if only the left is focused and prepared enough to walk through them. When the world is a mean and nasty little place Finding the truth can be a little tricky Don't go punch yourself in the face Just listen to an unfucking quickie Part 1. Economic Inequality. 99%. In the build-up to Russia's invasion, the unlikely and ultimately unsuccessful diplomatic star on the center stage was Emmanuel Macron. In the U.S., we like to think that we're the center of the world. And if you listen to our media, you'd think that we have the largest stake in this conflict. But it's Europe with the most on the line. Sure, the ripple effects of any large-scale conflict are typically felt around the globe, but this is very much a European conflict, and sometimes we take for granted just how small the European universe is. For example, the distance between Paris and Kyiv is about the same as driving from Portland, Maine to Orlando, Florida. From Berlin to Kyiv is like driving from Boston to Indianapolis. 
So rather than talk about Macron, I want to shift our attention to another Frenchman. Quote, hypercapitalism has gone much too far, and I am now convinced that we need to think about a new way of going beyond capitalism, a new form of socialism, participative and decentralized, federal and democratic, ecological, multiracial, and feminist, end quote. These are the words of Thomas Piketty. You already know that I'm a fan of his, and I want to turn you on to his latest book, Time for Socialism, Dispatches from a World on Fire, 2016 to 2021. It's a far more accessible read than his seminal work, Capital, and it pulls together his more recently published thoughts into a framework that incorporates the pandemic. So I'm starting with inequality and a discussion about the 99% because nothing can happen without considering the economic interests of the masses. Piketty is French, and as such, he writes a great deal about the French economy and the European Union in general. And many of his proposals are therefore couched in a historically more liberal framework than what we now experience in the United States. So many of his proposals sound like they're from another planet to modern American ears, though this wouldn't have been the case from the Great Depression through the 1960s. As unfuckers well know, one of the biggest achievements of the Chicago School and Mont Pelerin Society was to completely shift the narrative around participatory socialism and federalism in general. Nevertheless, Piketty strikes an optimistic tone with respect to long-term trends that we should preface our discussion with. As he says, quote, inequalities have been sharply reduced over the long term. The share of wealth of the richest 10% has fallen significantly from 80 to 90% to around 50 to 60%, which is still considerable. But the share of the poorest 50% has never stopped being tiny, end quote. What he's analyzing are data from over two centuries, so context is crucial here. And in the United States, the figures have worsened compared to other countries over the last half century. But the trend line is real and should allow us to think more broadly about inequality, lest we're overwhelmed by pessimism. Piketty rightly points to investments in public education, changes to the legal framework, and other mechanisms to level the playing field, then proposes something rather revolutionary. Inheritance for all. So before we dig into his idea, let's hear from former Treasury Secretary and now improbable social media darling Robert Reich to set the table on generational wealth transfer. So as income inequality has widened, the amount that the few high-earning households save, their wealth has continued to grow. Their growing wealth has allowed them to pass on more and more wealth to their heirs. Take, for example, the Waltons, the family behind the Walmart empire, which has seven heirs on the Forbes billionaires list. Their children and other rich millennials will soon consolidate even more of the nation's wealth. America is now on the cusp of the largest hmm. intergenerational transfer of wealth in history. As wealthy boomers pass on, somewhere between 30 to 70 trillion dollars will go to their children over the next three decades. These children will be able to live off this wealth and then leave the bulk of it, which will continue growing, to their own children, tax-free. After a few generations of this, almost all of America's wealth could be in the hands of a few thousand families. The topic of generational wealth transfer, or inheritance tax, is pretty much the third rail in the United States. The IRS has a very useful PDF that we'll link in Substack that reviews the history of the estate tax in the United States, if you want to dig deeper into it. It's obviously been a political football and a point of contention among the wealthy since inception. 
In fact, it was originally only intended to be a revenue generation tool for the U.S. government during times of severe financial crisis and distress, but then it was basically adopted and normalized over time. As with most issues surrounding taxation, there are myriad loopholes and exemptions, and several states have differing policies as well to complicate things even further. But broadly speaking, here's the important takeaway for our discussion. Democratic and Republican administrations and Congresses have all played a part since the 1980s in cutting what's owed in estate taxes. They've accomplished this by continually raising the exemption amount on what is taxable. So just like we unpacked in the imbalance in Social Security deductions in our Reagan episode, the same logic applies here. Don't look at the absolute tax amount. Look at the amount that is exempted. In simple math and excluding spousal and intergenerational loopholes that have further muddied the water, here's how it works. You die and leave $100,000 to your kids. The estate tax is 50%, but the exemption is $50,000. That means you would pay the government 25000 which is 50% of the non-exempt amount. So again, the tax code is obviously way more complicated than this, but I give you this to understand the only two inputs that really matter are the tax rate and the exemption amount. So now let's look at real figures. In 2001, just a little over 20 years ago, the tax rate was 55% and the exempted amount was 675000 So if you died and left your kids a million dollars, the taxable portion would be 325000 which means you would owe the government $178,750. So the effective tax rate on $1 million would have been about 17%. Now, this year, in 2022, the estate tax is 40%, and it's been that way for the past decade. What's changed more dramatically is the exemption. Remember that it was 675000 in 2001. Today, it's 12 million. You owe me some money, motherfucker! See, that's just the tip of the iceberg as to how the wealthy get away with holding on to their money. No, you can't take it with you, but you sure as shit can make sure that no one else gets a hold of it. But as I've said before, going after wealthy individuals isn't my issue, not directly at least. It's not about taking money away from people who have it so that the government can fill its coffers to provide for others. We've dispensed with that argument many times over, starting with our MMT episodes and oftentimes since. No, you see, the bigger problem is that it creates larger and larger disparities among a particular class of people who are able to gain influence over the mechanisms of power in order to maintain an unjust and unequal system. I need Don Corleone, those politicians that you carry in your pocket, like so many nickels and dimes. This is where the left needs a psychological edge to use the right's logic against itself. And this is where Piketty flips the script in a really interesting way. So to be clear, the current estate tax formula expires in 2025 and will revert slightly to prior year norms, but it's still not enough. We should absolutely revisit the policy in a wholesale fashion to prevent such disproportionate generational wealth transfer and close some massive loopholes. But Piketty has another solution that bears inspection. Quote, I support the idea of a more proactive solution in the form of a minimum inheritance for all, which to give an idea could be on the order of 120,000 euros, i.e. about 60% of average wealth per adult in France today, or 180,000, about 60% of the average wealth per adult in the United States today, paid out at the age of 25. 
Such an inheritance for all would represent an annual expenditure of around 5% of national income, which could be financed by a mixture of annual progressive property tax, like real estate, financial and professional assets, net of debts, and a progressive inheritance tax, end quote. So Piketty refers to this as a, quote, universal capital endowment. Now, the right in the U.S. will clearly object to financing this through a progressive estate tax because it would signify a direct redistribution of wealth. Now, let's look at this in plain numbers, though. About 4.3 million Americans will turn 25 years of age this year. If we gave each one of them $180,000, as Piketty states, it would be a total outlay of $779 billion. Come on, Max, be real. That's an outrageous sum. I mean, where on earth would we get that kind of money? What nation in its right fucking mind would spend that amount of money every year on a single program like this? Yet today, the U.S. Senate will begin consideration of an annual defense budget that cost $778 billion. $778 billion for one year. UNFTR is also brought to you by Insane Level members Nathan E., Michelle H., W. Jeremy D., Eric Wagner 101, Rob Nasby, Asoke, Nick G., Cassie LMM, and the Worry Clan, Nathan Second, and Lance C. Part 2. Mass Mobilization. 3.5%. So do I think that creating some sort of massive inheritance for all Americans at turn 25 is actually possible? Probably not. But let's think about what it takes to mobilize the masses around a singular issue. Let's talk about mass mobilization with the theory of popular resistance from a researcher named Chenoweth. Too popular. I know about popular. And with the- oh, my bad. Wrong Chenoweth. Uh, here you go. So why is civil resistance so much more effective than armed struggle? The answer seems to lie in people power itself. Researchers used to say that no government could survive if just 5% of its population rose up against it. Our data show that the number may be lower than that. No single campaigns failed during that time period after they'd achieved the active and sustained participation of just 3.5% of the population. And lots of them succeeded with far fewer than that. Though we haven't covered it before, many unfuckers might be familiar with the work of Erica Chenoweth, who studied the difference in outcomes between violent and nonviolent resistance efforts throughout the world over an extended period of time. Her conclusion was somewhat of a sensation because it debunked a couple of widely held beliefs. The first was the the back-of-the-napkin estimate that a revolution required 5% of a population to be successful, and that violent uprisings are more effective. A couple of reasons for bringing this up. The first is that Chenoweth has continued to build on her thesis to provide necessary context and insight. The other reason is to determine the pretext for how the left will move forward given the complexities of the world that we live in and the quick-paced nature of global change, as evidenced by the war in Ukraine. One of Chenoweth's key insights is to refrain from oversimplification. The concept of 3.5% does not simply mean that if 3.5% of a population takes to the streets seeking social change or even regime change, that it will happen abruptly. Change of any magnitude requires, first, broad coalition building. 
An event can certainly spark a movement, but it still requires political, social, and legal maneuvering to capitalize at the right moment. She also points to failure in Bahrain, which purportedly had 6% participation in its movement to change the regime, as proof that her theory should be considered a tendency rather than law, and further proof that preparedness among the coalition of supporters is also required. Perhaps most importantly, she clarifies that popular uprisings are oftentimes the culminating rather than the precipitating event. In other words, an extension of years of planning and cultivation. This is truly the quickest of the quickies, but something I wanted to put out into the ether so that we can factor it into our discussions moving forward. Because using Chenoweth's research and conclusions and to build on our numbers theme, we would theoretically need to mobilize between 8 and 10 million Americans in support of or against a particular cause, assuming that we're talking about the primary block of activist age groups. Our demands would have to be focused and clear, and we would need to be prepared to seize upon any momentum through legal and political channels. One of the reasons it's so difficult to move the needle on the left is because there's so much work to be done. We have pockets of important constituencies that have credible and necessary demands, but overall we lack the ability to build strong and related coalitions. Do we mobilize our millions in support of free college, Medicare for all, universal pre-K, legal weed, or against discriminatory laws and practices, tax cuts for the wealthy, fossil fuel subsidies, endless war? All of these things require advocacy, and yet the deck is so stacked and our attention so fragmented, it's difficult to perceive a moment or movement. It's why minority voices have a chance to win and drown out the majority. The majority of the population wants universal health care. They want higher taxes on the rich to end fossil fuel subsidies and foreign interventions. But this muddled mess of demands sounds like white noise compared to the bumper sticker ideology of the right. Tax cuts on job creators, the war on terror, don't tread on me, back the blue, law and order, freedom and liberty. Now I stand behind that top five bills concept that we've been humping in prior episodes, using the simplified and creative patriotic language tactics of the right to push through a piecemeal agenda that will provide enormous benefits to the population. But these can only happen when you have control of Congress and the White House as we do right now. And we should absolutely pursue these policies while the window remains at least partially open before the midterms. But even these and other critical initiatives that are on the table need to be part of a larger strategy, an endgame of sorts. There has to be a focal point just like there was for the neoliberal class guided by the Chicago boys. You see, the overarching theme, their North Star, was always free markets. Everything flowed from here. Tax cuts? a cornerstone of free market capitalism, building the military-industrial complex, simply spreading democracy and opening global free markets, affirmative action, contrary to free market meritocracy, privatization of everything from water to prisons, the free market can do it better than the government. Almost every bad policy was somehow explained away through a free market rationale. That's the central planning nerve that Chenoweth speaks of that higher ideal, the coalescing narrative. Now, those on the left already know the answer to what comes next. There's only one coalescing narrative that matters any longer. One goal that trumps all others. <clears throat> Word choice, please. Sorry. One goal that supersedes all others. Because if we get it wrong, nothing else matters. One and a half 
degrees. One never knows where the spark comes from or when it might catch, but the war in Ukraine got me wondering if one of the opportunistic consequences of this war might be that a cold-blooded psychopath inadvertently created the spark that we need. And rounding out today's sponsors, we have this episode, which is brought to you by Unfucking Pro member, Maria from Puerto Rico. Part 3. Climate Change. 1.5 Degrees. Let's bring Piketty back into the picture for a moment as we move to the subject of climate change. General conclusion, we have to take inequality uh, very seriously uh, if we want to, uh, you know, uh, fight, uh, you know, the, the biggest uh, challenges we have to uh, confront in the world today, which in my view are rising inequality and, and, and global warming. So Piketty recognizes, as do many in public policy and academia, that inequality and climate change are two of the biggest, if not the biggest, crises that we face as a species. What I appreciate about Piketty's work of late is his ability to actually connect the two. I'm linking the brief presentation that the quote you just heard is drawn from, but the upshot of what he's talking about is that when he dug deeper into the causes of carbon emissions, he was able to definitively conclude that the average emissions of the bottom 50% and middle 40% of humans are substantially lower than the emissions of the top 10% of global citizens. And that if we simply met the existing standard of the 90%, we would already likely match our 1.5 degree target. By the way, for sobering reading, I'm including a link to the comprehensive IPCC report that was finally just released to the public. It's 3,600 pages, so don't expect you to read it all. But if you go through all of the executive summaries and conclusions in the beginning, you get some pretty staggering and sobering results. Now, during any other normal time, as if normal even exists anymore, it would be front page news because it demonstrates just how seriously fucked we are and how we cannot afford to take our eye off the ball for a minute with respect to climate change. Of course, these aren't, again, normal times. There's a war going on. So you won't hear much about the most important story in history right now. But let's thread together our concepts anyway. Piketty argues that our economic and political solutions to achieving the 1.5 degree target cannot be leveled evenly across the board because 90% of the planet isn't responsible for the bulk of the problem. This is a problem of the top 10%, and therefore any measures to curtail high-emitting behavior or activities should fall more proportionally on this class. This might seem like an obvious statement, but it's not. In order to achieve the IPCC goals, the masses are going to have to pressure the global elites to change their behaviors. We have to change the laws alter the incentives, punish bad behavior, and reward good behavior. We need to sanction the worst corporate actors and incentivize clean corporations. Now think about Chenoweth for a second. Think about energy in a movement. Think about the things that matter to you as an activist on the left. Things like poverty. The top 1% has received the vast majority of economic gains over the past 50 years. That's a fact. Racism. Within nations like the United States, racism exists within the structures of society and in our culture. But zoom out and you see that the global South has been treated viciously by the global North. And examine the top 10% of carbon emission culprits in Piketty's chart, and it reveals a pretty common profile and characteristic that tracks along racial lines. Or what about gender inequality? Same logic applies here. 
women are disproportionately underrepresented in the top income and wealth distribution globally. So who needs to get their shit together? White men in the global north. That's the top 10% of all society. That's who we're always, still, and forever fucking talking about. The point is that when it comes to climate issues, there is a great level of interconnectedness between climate justice and other societal ills. Climate justice is the one unifying force that has a shot of awakening 3.5% of a nation's population, or perhaps the world, but only if we're clear in our demands. And that's where Putin might have unwittingly moved the needle. You see, we're so fucked up in the United States that we actually had a portion of the pundit class coming to the defense of the fossil fuel industry as we covered last week. Remember that clip that we played of Biden just asking oil and gas companies not to price gouge in a time of war? And how Larry Kudlow was like, how dare he go after our beloved fossil fuel industry? I ate a toad this morning. Talk about gaslighting. Remember, they're not oil and gas companies anymore. They're casinos. People were surprised over the past couple of weeks when oil came down almost $20 a barrel. In fact, as of this recording, it just jumped another five. And it's likely to seesaw like that for as long as they can get away with it because, as unfuckers now know, they make money when prices go up and down because they're in control of the pricing and the derivatives. Volatility means way more to them than stability. So what opening has Putin given the world? Well, for one, these situations force us out of normative policy stances. For example, normalizing relations with Venezuela. Will this hold? Who the fuck knows? But it wouldn't be happening otherwise. We're even closer to re-ratifying the Iran nuclear deal, which is a critical step in normalizing relations in the Middle East. Just a few months ago, economic observers and politicians around the world were pointing to the Chinese-Russian economic alliance as the greatest threat to the United States in the vacuum and the void created by the Trump administration. But now China is in a real conundrum as the entire world is turned against Putin. Not just the United States, but the world, including critical Asian economic allies such as Japan, who is the chief clearinghouse of Chinese debt. Check out one of Adam Tooze's latest posts talking about what's really happening on the ground in China, and you'll be surprised at just how fragile things are there. Perhaps one of the most stunning developments is how Europe has sort of adopted a fuck-this-guy attitude. According to a recent Al Jazeera article, quote, the International Energy Agency this month issued a 10-point plan to reduce Russian gas imports by 63 billion cubic meters, approximately half of what Europe imported last year through a mixture of diversification and economy. The organization says these measures could be enacted in the next year without building new infrastructure. A few days after the IEA's statement, the European Commission announced an even more ambitious plan to reduce reliance on Russian gas by two-thirds before Christmas and abolish all Russian fossil fuels, including coal and oil, by 2030. We cannot simply rely on a supplier who explicitly threatens us, said EC President Ursula von der Leyen, unveiling the plan on March 8th, end quote. By the way, Paul Krugman also recently teased out the numbers a little bit further in his Times column but he approached it in purely economic terms. Essentially, what would have to happen to the price of gas for the German people to cut their reliance upon it? And he quotes German economists who have been puzzling this idea, saying, quote, yet even with those pessimistic assumptions, they find that Germany could, in fact, do without Russian natural gas, precisely because the country currently spends so little on Russian imports. The cost would be serious. German real income might fall by around 2%, 
the equivalent of a moderate recession, but it wouldn't be the end of the world, end quote. This wouldn't ultimately be the most sustainable path as it would induce a recession and prices would eventually come down, but it demonstrates once again just how much power is actually in our hands, in the hands of the bottom 90%. Collectively, we have more sway than we realize. Now, I know I've talked a lot about the financialization of commodities markets, specifically oil and gas over the past couple of months, so I won't go much further into it right now. No, please do. Why stop now? We love it so much. Shut up, Manny. As I was saying, the financialization of commodities is more important than the left realizes. We need to get our stories straight and understand these markets and how they work. For example, one of the most widely accepted ideas on the left is to nationalize oil and gas companies here and around the world. Now, I think it's a great idea, don't get me wrong, but it's wholly impractical. Plus, there's an easier way to do it than to try and stamp out a global private industry. Defund it. Take away their ability to profit on price volatility. But I understand one of the reasons that the left doesn't like this conceptually is because high oil and gas prices cause consumer pain and outrage. And the left loves high gas prices because it makes people mad and it refocuses our attention on renewables. That's what's happening in Germany. But here, we're stupid and we're irrational. Prices go up and we do lose our minds. So what do they do? They just force them back down. But when they do that, they take short positions and extract profit on the decline, by the way. So we just go back to our lives like nothing ever happened, and it's rinse and repeat all over again. They play us like a fiddle. So I say, don't stop the music. Just break their fucking bow. D-list oil and gas. Just take them off the fucking exchanges like they used to be. Regulate pricing. Here's the economic reality. The cost of renewable energy manufacturing and production continues to lower, and the more we retrofit our economy to leverage this type of energy, the more profitable it will be. If we shift the oil and gas subsidies to renewable subsidies, regardless of who gets them, so long as you can demonstrate the funds go towards renewable production, then we'll have artificially and naturally supported an economic transition without having to go to war with an entire industry. Remember that part of the 3.5% equation is the planning, preparation, and education that goes into establishing a rallying point and a demand. There's nothing positive about war, and the people of Ukraine deserve our sympathy and support, and the global community should do whatever it can to support the Russian people in ousting Putin. But that doesn't mean you stop planning and working to stave off the unyielding catastrophe that awaits our species if we turn a blind eye to climate change. So it's imperative that we continue to speak the language of progress and to inform ourselves, to understand that inequality, racism, and poverty are all tributaries of climate justice. Because if we're going to get 3.5% of the 99% motivated to hit the 1.5 degree target, we'd better know what we're asking for. Otherwise, we'll all be in our little corners of the world shouting at the acid rain and changing nothing. Read Piketty, defund fossil fuel companies, and love your mother, both of them. Here endeth the quickie. Hey, 99. Welcome into Not Show Notes. Hi, Max. I'm thinking we should reach out to Tom McGovern and ask him for some sort of epilogue theme. Hmm. I've been calling it post-show musings. Oh. <laughs> DSM? 
post-show musings. It's kind of hard to wrap my mouth around. Welcome to post-show musings. Well, that's why we have Tom to sing a song about it. Oh, good point. Yeah. So first, I wanted to thank the sponsors again. Do uh, you want to talk about how we uh, broke them up a little bit? The listeners might notice we broke sponsors up differently this week. And now that we have so many, honestly, we didn't want it to be a laundry list, but we're obviously always appreciative and we want to shout them out. So did a little break in between. Yeah. And when I took my little uh, hiatus there for personal reasons, a number of sponsors just continued to come through, which is which is interesting because some of the messages were people that were catching up through the back catalog and didn't know kind of like where we were at that moment. And then others were like, hey, here's some support as you go through this time just to keep you going. So I thought it was worth calling out again the, the fact that if not for the sponsors, there's no way we can continue to do this insanity every single week. It is a lot of work and you make it possible. And I think we've come up with a really good funding formula between the coffee sales and our great partnership with the Ankachog people. And what you're giving us, just this the support that you're giving us as unfuckers. And there's a lot that's beginning to percolate in the community about connections coming together. I saw some outreach on Facebook, maybe people creating a group there. And we, we got an email from bondfucker Jen G, who wrote in about us talking about creating little groups and stuff. And she had a word of caution about, I guess there was kind of a failed upstart called Indivisible. I, I'm mm. not really familiar with them, but I think it was like a too many cook scenario where sure. recreating what doesn't need to be created. And she was just issuing a word of caution that, we shouldn't try to start our own little coalition if there is already these amazing organizations that exist. And that's a really good point. And I just wanted to, to say to Genji and all of our unfuckers, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. First and foremost, get involved in your local community. Absolutely. I mean, I've been saying that from day one. This is more just, hey, let's get our unfuckers in one place together so they can talk. They can talk about the episodes. They can share resources. Yeah, this is really just a way we're trying to find ways to encourage unfuckers to meet either in their communities, which would be ideal, mm -hmm. uh, but to even to meet virtually and discover one another so that we, you know, when we have these coalescing ideas that should be around other organizations, we are not activists and we are not community organizers. That's not our thing. Yeah. We're just providing sort of the spark and some of the research and the thought behind these things. But those type of movements should absolutely be more organic and they should be with existing organizations that have boots on the ground, that have been doing the hard work and the heavy lifting for years and years. Nothing drives me crazier than talking to people that are starting their own charity, for example, because they're like, well, I'm going to start a charity and it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to create a board of directors and then we're going to raise some money and then we're going to do. And it's just like, you know, I'm pretty sure this has been done a thousand times over. And if you just put your energy into that other place and that's part of the fracture on the left, just in general, is staying on message, but how many messages, which was, again, the overarching theme of this episode. But that's a really good point. Gen G, was yeah. it? So to sum up, we want to thank our sponsors again for changing the format it, continually, as, as you know. This little epilogue section will be more unscripted and allow us to fit in a little bit of dialogue and discourse about the topics that we covered. And on that note, I actually just wanted to read something quickly from... Piketty's book, Time for Socialism, which is our book love for this week. So one and only book for everyone to get a hold of and read. And we'll put that in bookshop, obviously. But in his introduction, he has a, a statement here that really kind of got me motivated to put this quickie together. He says, several points deserve to be clarified. First of all, no valid environmental policy can be carried out if it is not part of a global socialist project 
based on the reduction of inequalities, the permanent circulation of power and property, and the redefinition of economic indicators. I insist on this last point. There is no point in circulating power if we keep the same economic objectives. We therefore need to change the framework both at the individual and local level and at the national level. Gross domestic product must be replaced by the notion of national income. Attention must focus on distributions and not averages, and these indicators in terms of income must be complemented by environmental indicators, in particular regarding carbon emissions, end quote. So this is the type of work that is happening in other parts of the world that we really don't pay a lot of attention to here, but it did inspire my thoughts around this episode. And the other thing that I wanted to kind of put in here as sort of concluding remarks is to revisit a discussion that we had from a couple of previous episodes, most notably the vegan episode and our climate industrial complex episode. And that is this idea of mobilization around one core initiative. I believe that initiative obviously should be climate justice because we can tuck in a ton of other important initiatives in terms of social justice and economic justice and legal justice and gender justice, all of those things we can tuck in beneath this overarching framework of climate justice. And we need to begin to train ourselves to talk about what that's like. Now, in the United States, there's one more number that we should focus on, and that is being number one. So now go back to our China episode, our climate industrial complex episode, and think about how we were framing our discussion back then that the United States will not go quietly into second place that we will use all military capability available to us to try and prevent that. Well, there's an opening right now that pretends an interesting shift. And that is in what Adam Tooze was talking about in sort of the crumbling fringes of the Chinese economy, which is growing slower right now than people had anticipated. In fact, there were a couple of months recently that the United States actually grew faster than the Chinese economy. Very interesting. It's also interesting to note that their approach to managing the pandemic has actually resulted in a new surge of cases in China that happened to be in two cities that are vital to global manufacturing. So we might see a renewed issue when it comes to supply chain that's even worse than we experienced the first time around. And recognizing the fact that, you know, the pandemic was global. And these type of things, these ills can be exported from there as well. Now you have the fact that you have President Xi's two top economic advisors retiring. So there's a regime change of sorts under President Xi that's occurring right now in China. And Xi's calculus has just changed because the Russian alliance with the Chinese was very fucking real. And now it's a little bit fractured and it's going to stay that way. Every day that Putin stays in Ukraine and every day that he litigates this war in a horrific way that's opened up to the world, this guy's truly going to become the third rail in the world. There will be Middle Eastern countries that won't have the appetite to even deal with him. I mean, he's painting himself into an amazing corner with respect to foreign relations in the rest of the world. And that's something that should be seen as an opportunity by us. So I imagine if Kennan was still here in charge of our foreign policy and we had somebody like John Maynard Keynes, who was examining the economic outputs of the United States with respect to a potentially shrinking China 
all of the potential disastrous effects of climate change and a rogue state in Russia that is about to take itself pretty much out of the running to be to hit that top 10 that they wanted to hit. You know, remember that their economy is still smaller than Italy and Spain and a number of other uh, Nordic economies. So they've taken themselves out of the running. So all of a sudden, last year, let's say a year ago, we were sitting in this position where it seemed like the world was, I don't know, pretty, pretty fucked with respect to the United States being able to reclaim the mantle of being number one. But we have to change the diff. We have to change the definition of what it is to be number one, and that again, to me, comes back to climate justice. We cannot model an economic future being number one as the last country standing. Because remember, again, back to our climate episode, we talked about how the military has been modeling climate change and is sort of sanguine about the opportunities for the United States because of our natural resources. We're going to be the last country standing. Essentially, we just got lucky that way. But that's not really a great way if there's nobody left to trade with because everybody died from extreme heat waves or fucking tidal you know, waves and, and extreme weather events. Well, that doesn't really pretend a, a great economic future for us as well. Not to mention the fact that it's just fucking inhuman and insane to participate in killing your mother planet. So when we think about the ultimate number that matters to us as Americans, we are competitive motherfuckers. We want to win all the time. There is a race to be won right now, and it is the race to net zero. So number one equals net zero in my mind. And that's the type of language that we need to begin adopting, irrespective of where you fall on the left in terms of the issues that are most important to you. Becoming number one with respect to climate justice initiatives will propel the United States to continuing our economic dominance, we will lead the world out of this potential climate catastrophe, and we will, just by association, begin to heal and cure all of those other inequality tributaries that we talked about. So, yes, I got all of that re-inspired by reading Time for Socialism by Thomas Piketty. I hope that you tap into him and his wisdom and his research and what he's looking at. And we're going to try and introduce some other great thinkers from around the world that have done some incredible work in this field as well as we go forward. So do you think this should have been part of the episode or I don't know? I just like being more unscripted about it and just kind of speaking from the heart. Yeah, I was about to say something similar. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good to feel your raw passion rather than your concerted writings. Yeah, and it's not outrage. It's really just kind of like optimism. it's uh, it's optimism, <laughs> like one of our favorite podcasts, outrage and optimism. It's thinking differently about where we are right now and trying to apply, I guess, real politique logic, like understanding who we are as a people is really critical. Like the David McWilliams podcast, I think even in his introduction, he says to understand economics is to understand human behavior. And so what's going to work for Germany in trying to break from fossil fuels and break from Russian gas is not going to work as an incentive for Americans who believe the the origin story of the oil and gas frontiersmen that went out and drilled a well and struck it rich. And God damn it, that's my money on my oil. Like that's it's just not going to play here. The Germans are going to be much more, you know, 
precise and efficient and calculating about it as they are from their economic perspective. They're a much more cold and calculated. By the way, you know what the fucking craziest thing is? Is that if they continue on their remilitarization path, Germany that is, right? Because this guy, so here's another fucking thing that Putin has, has freaked everybody out with. Germany, which as we know, was kind of problematic in the last century. Huh? Yeah, no, a, a little bit. We, we, do, no? I don't think they taught me that in school. Yeah. So I, they made Volkswagens. They, they did. That's about all I know. Yeah. There's uh, a few pretzels, other things. Uh, beer. Yeah. We, okay. But there was a couple. Anyway, it's not important for right now. Okay. Bottom line is we took all of their weapons away for a very long time because they yeah, did they some stuff. They had a timeout. They had a timeout. But they're remilitarizing right now because they're right next to fucking Russia, right? I mean, East Germany was part of the Soviet Union, all of that. And uh, if they continue with this growth trend in the next couple of years, they're going to be the third largest military in the world again. We, you know, so, guy, like, pause for a minute. Yeah, like, I don't let's like put the that. brakes on that shit, right? Right away. Sorry to all our German listeners, but I mean, you know, it's still. I have German in my heritage, so. You do? I'm allowed to speak to it, I think. Yeah. German and Russian. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, this is all about you. Yeah. How do you feel? Do you feel attacked? Yeah. Right yeah. I feel attacked on all fronts. I'm sorry. It's about me. I'm the center. I'm the center of this conflict. You're the center of my world. I think Putin actually has it out for me. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> so, and, and last little note is I think I've centered on what our next quick take format is going to be. Remember, even before we talked about dropping show notes separately in the feed, we talked about dropping in once or twice a month, a different kind of quick take format. So I think I have that resolved in my mind. It's beginning to really take shape. So you can look forward to that in the next couple of months, but we do have to get some support on that. And we have a couple of really cool collaborations coming up over the next few episodes that we're pretty excited about as well. So lots to look forward to, but just as we look in the rear view, briefly before we close here, I wanna thank everybody again for your support for the kind messages that keep flowing in about, um, you know, losing my mother and some of the really amazing stories that some of you have shared uh, of loss and sharing to me in support of this recent loss for me. And it's been, it's really been cathartic and very powerful to, uh, to get your messages. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. And uh, it's got me focused and uh, rededicated to our efforts here. And I'm really excited for what's to come this year. As always... Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by the sound design master, Manny Faces Media. Russian President Vladimir Putin is now attacking his own people. Listen to what he said today about Russians who dare to sympathize with Ukraine or the West. Whatever we do, we must get uh, 99 uh, target and attack 99. Uh, 99 is the key. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. <laughs> Take care of yourselves, unfuckers. Our theme music, and hopefully more to come, was mm -hmm. composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by 99's German heritage and distributed by the Russian half of her. <laughs> Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social as you have been at unftrpod. And by the way, I see the numbers creeping up. Whatever you're doing, 99, reaching out to people to get them more involved. It's happening. You're the best. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. 
Remember, we have whole bean available for all of our blends. And Mellow, did, Mellow Maynard actually sold out. So we have to restock that, right? Yeah. Okay. And read our essays on fucking Substack already, all right? If you haven't done it. You know what happened on Substack, by the way? We dropped out of the top 200. That's fucked up. I know. You know why? Because all these people, all these big guys are coming over. I see that too. Yeah. I might have subscribed to Chris Hedges. I'm not paying him yet. I'm just going to see what that's all about. We're already paying YouTube, like... We pay YouTube. Oh, update. Yeah. I have YouTube premium now. Ta-da! So it happened. Thank you, everybody. It's a big day. I uh, did. Wait, and who specifically? Maria from Puerto Rico. Maria from she Puerto said, Rico. I upgraded my membership <laughs> because you're too important to sit through ads. So That's Maria's right. my sugar mama. <laughs> I'd like to buy the world YouTube premium. <laughs> um, yeah, that that is actually... Uh, I. I still giggle every video I watch and there's no ad. I'm just like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I didn't realize how painful it was. I did log on to my account from my TV in my living room because me and my roommate will put on YouTube and we're bored. Sure. And now we don't have to sit through ads. <laughs> I was looking through I was looking through my previously watched videos. Oof. And as I've said, I'm I'm you know, I'm a designer in my past life. So uh it's my work account and there's like just videos of me watching different weights of paper to figure out like mm. the best paper to print on mm. and like all these how boring it was the most boring thing on earth but it was really making me laugh it was a timestamp for me like videos specific to clients we had right you know well, and <laughs> i will tell you that if you look through my history one of the one of the more bizarre things that i didn't even know that i was interested in until like i saw one video and then of course i had to watch like a thousand of them are these people that go into the woods and then they can build a cabin in the snow in like a day and they they build like fireplaces and they cook shit and they can survive there and and i'm fascinated by it because i can't do anything with my hands i can write and that's about all i can do i'm the least handy person maybe ever and so i'm fascinated by that but then it occurs to me that between all of the ridiculous political shit that I watch for the show <laughs> yeah. and these kind of like quasi survivalist like videos. You're going to be on the Unabomber list. Yeah, I might be disappeared. So if you if you don't hear from me ever well, again on Fuckers. it's because we went into the woods. It's where, yeah. I can, I'm handy. Are you? You could build us a cabin? I probably could. At oh. a minimum, I could get us a tent going until the cabin is there. What would we eat? Well, you're a vegan. You'd figure that shit out, right? Yeah, grass. Grass. <laughs> Uh, so read our essays on Substack. On They're fuckers. not like this. <laughs> They're not like this at all. UNFTR.substack.com. And what do you have to pay for those? 99? Zero. Is that Point right? Zero. Zero. Point zero. zero. There's our real number of the day. Zero. See you next week on Fuckers. Actually, we'll see you midweek for show notes. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. To understand that inequality, racism, and... Racism and racism. Hmm. Nevertheless. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>